All right, my name is Thomas, and I have a great role here at Calvary. I get to open up the scriptures on Sundays and be able to open them up and and teach what is God saying to us? How is God revealing himself to us? And we are doing that through a series we began last week in the study of Exodus. It's an Old Testament narrative, a historical narrative of God's dealing with his people, Israel, to free them from a place of bondage and bring them to a place of promise. It truly is everything that epitomizes the word epic. It is epic. And the goal of Exodus is to make God known, that we would know him. He wants himself to be known by Pharaoh and by Egypt. He wants himself to be known by his people, those who have forgotten who he is. And we're using Exodus as a way for us to know who is God. Who is the God that we pray to? Who is the God that we worship? Who is the God that we gather around? Who is this God? Because knowing who God is really matters. It matters as it shapes who you are. It matters how we relate to this God. We we talked about last week about being stuck in a place in life where it just feels hopeless. You get a place in in life, whether it's a relationship that just doesn't seem to be going well or to be totally fractured. Maybe it gets to a place in your finances where it just seems hopeless to, you know, even get out of debts. Or a place where you've developed behaviors that have really turned into habits or added appetites that just lead you into kind of this area in life where you think, I I wish I could say no to these things, but I don't say no to things. I'm I'm almost enslaved to them. They kind of own me. And I wish I could find freedom from it, but I look and I, there's no way for me to retrace my steps and get out of it. And there's no way for me to, to see the way forward and by my own strengths and my own abilities to leverage myself out of it. I really am stuck. And that sense of discouragement that comes with bondage is real. There's also another feeling that comes with being stuck, especially when bondage is very real and oppressive. And that is the, the feeling of fear. That fear settles in, like, is is it always going to be like today? Is there any chance, any hope that things might change, that a new beginning could happen? And you're afraid of your circumstances. Back in 2013, we had historic floods here on the Front Range. Many of you lived through that. Many families here at Calvary were impacted with the flooding in their homes, properties, businesses, especially those who were living on the Front Range or up in the mountains. And the weekend in which we were supposed to gather to worship, we actually did something very different as a church. I love our church because our church has a heart and compassion for the community and the needs that they have. And so on that Sunday when homes were flooding and when people's properties were being ruined, we didn't gather for services. We gathered as work task forces. And we went all over Erie and Boulder in the mountains, and we helped families. We walked in, whether they were faith-oriented or not faith-oriented, whether we knew them or didn't know them, we walked in and helped families gut their basements, tear out drywall, pull down, you know, insulation, get rid of mold, get them ready to recover and start over again. And there are so many stories that came from Calvary families, women and men, jumping in and serving those in the community. One in particular that I remember was talking to a gentleman who had received one of the teams from Calvary. And he had said that he was a professing atheist. But the most unusual thing happened, that as he tried to manage the waters on day one, and he tried to manage the waters on day two, and day three, seeing that his property was ruined, and sitting in his basement with water near his waist, he said he did the weirdest thing. He prayed. He prayed. He got down on his knees and he prayed. 
You see, he's never really prayed before. And, and perhaps that's, that's you in this room. I, I, I don't ever pray. I don't really think that God hears prayers or does anything with prayers. Perhaps you haven't prayed in a long time. But there's something about being stuck when fear comes in that it just drives you to a place to say, God, if you're real, I mean, if you hear prayers, if you can do anything or are willing to do anything, would you please, and you petition him to do something on your behalf. The question is, who is God? Who is this man potentially praying to? Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the Father of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Does he hear prayers? Does he know what's going on in your life? Can he hear or see? Does he want to pay any attention? Can he even do anything about it? Let's say he can do something. Does he want to do something? Is that an inconvenience to him? So when we started off in the Bible, we started in Genesis last week. And Genesis is making God known as the creator. That God is the creator of the world. And as creator, he created with purpose and order. And the question that Exodus is going to answer by making God known is does the God who created in Genesis with purpose and order, is he present within his creation, helping his creation, alongside his creation in the midst of their struggles? Does he hear prayers? Does he move? Is he a participant? That's the question that we want to look at today when we're in Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what I want to do is I want to start at the end of chapter 2 and then, start, then jump into chapter 1 and work our way to the finish line. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 2. That's the second book in your Bible. If you don't have your Bibles with you, fear not, friends. We have bought many a Bibles and put them in the seats in front of you. Grab one of those. That is the world's smallest print. So grab that and your monocle and we will get going. Are you guys in a good mood today? I hope so. I'm in a good mood. The Buffs won. Ah, uh, did you see that game? That, that was so sad for CSU. All right. Verse 23. This is where we're going to end the sermon. We're going to start here, though. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. If you, if you have liberty to circle in your Bible, or you like to circle things in your Bible, this is the description of who God is when you cry out, when you're groaning, when you are stuck. This is the God who hears, circle the word hears, he sees, you can circle sees, he remembers. That means he's faithful to accomplish everything that he's promised. He's faithful. And he knew. He knows what's going on. This is the God of the Bible. This is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who hears and sees and remembers and knows. That's who God is. And we, we cry out, God, do you, do you see us here? Are you doing anything? I mean, when you're stuck and you're in that hard season, does it not feel like God is absent and you're crying out, God, can you, can you see what's going on? And here Exodus tells us that God hears. That God is not so far removed from your life that he actually hears. That he's tuned his ear to hear your voice. To hear your cry for help. 
He's hearing the cries of his people. And he's not infatuated with something over here and, and doesn't see what's going on in your life. It's not as though his back is towards you and you have to get his attention. No, his eyes see you. He sees what you've been up to this week. He sees the grief you're struggling with. He sees where you're burdened. He sees where you're struggling. He hears and he sees. And he's faithful. It says he remembered. This is the covenant that we looked at last week. God's promise to a people of Israel from Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is always faithful to accomplish what he has promised. He'll never forget. So he remembers. He's faithful. And this last word that just lands on our ears, and God knew. It's not that he cognitively knew of their suffering. Like, well, I've heard that there's some troubles overseas. I've seen it reported in the news. I know that they're struggling. No, when it says that God knew, that word knew speaks to an intimate relationship with. It's what Genesis uses when it says that Adam knew his wife and they conceived. It's this idea that God not only is hearing and seeing and remembering, but that he is well acquainted with personal relationship, intimate relationship with wherever you are. God knows. He knows. And so these are the characteristics of the God of Israel, the God we worship today. And so in those days when the king died and they're in slavery and they're saying, God, we don't see you. Where are you? Do you hear? Do you care? Will you do anything? It says those prayers rise to this God who hears, sees, remembers, and knows. And the truth that we learn about God is that God is active even when he appears to be absent. God is actively moving even when he appears to be absent. He's moving when you don't see it or sense it. God is the, the main character of this story. Don't forget that. When we go through Exodus, the story is not Moses' story. The story is not Aaron's story. This is God's story. It's his story. History is his story. God's story of how he moves his plan of redemptive history forward. And he does it through characters like Moses and as we'll see today, he's doing it through some unlikely characters who see that God is active in their life and is moving the plan forward. So to see that God is active, even when he appears to be absent, I want to go back now to chapter 1, and we'll start here in verse 15 of chapter 1, and we'll come back to the end of chapter 2. Does that sound good? I know that's what you're hoping for, huh? Like you got here at church, like, I hope he goes back to chapter 1 and goes to chapter 2. Man, I'm in a good mood, okay? You don't have to be. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous 
and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. That's where this progresses from. Last week we saw that in fear of this people group that had immigrated into Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, in his fear, enslaved them. And now in his fear, he begins to eradicate them. This is genocide. And it's not like, well, that's just old-time history. People don't do that anymore. No, this speaks to the condition of a wicked human heart that is still very present today. Like you've seen these things in our generation that have happened in Nazi Germany, happened in China, happened in Africa, where people identify a people group and then try to eradicate them. It's sick. It's totally sick. And what the king of Egypt determines to do in the beginning is to do it privately that no one would know about. So he recruits the Hebrew midwives, those who are going to help with labor and delivery. This says, okay, here's the thing. When, when you see a Hebrew woman giving birth, and you're right there in the beginning, and you notice that this is a boy, you kill him. Now, we're not calling you to kill him like when they're in the crib or later on. No, we want to do it before anyone knows. And so when you recognize that it's a son coming out of the womb, kill it. Maybe, maybe tell mom it, it was a stillbirth, and no one will know. And the Hebrew wives, there's the statement twice, but the Hebrew midwives feared God and did not do this. They feared God and did not do this. What does that mean? It means they, they let God be the dictator, the determiner of their actions, and not Pharaoh. If you would fear Pharaoh, then Pharaoh would determine how you are to respond and how you are to behave. But the Hebrew midwife said, no, we, we don't obey Pharaoh, we obey God. Which reminds me of another episode in, in the New Testament with Peter, when the Sanhedrin want him to stop preaching. And this is where Peter says to them, this is Acts chapter 5, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Like we, we know what God has asked us to do, we have to obey God rather than men. Now, God's people are called to submit to the governing authorities. We're called to pray for our governing officials. But when they call us to do something that goes against what God has called us to do, there's this room of civil disobedience which the midwives display. And so fear is an interesting thing. Everybody in this room fears something. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. And the thing about fear is this. Whatever you're afraid of, you give control to. And so if you are afraid of people's opinions of you, what people think, like, I, I'm just so afraid that someone's going to think I'm stupid or unaccomplished or not successful or I don't fit in. If you're afraid of people's opinions, that, that becomes the captain, the driver of decisions that you're making. And so how you begin to respond to life is out of fear of what people think about you and what people think about you and their opinions of you begin to drive how you live life. It controls you a bit. For those of us in the room, we, we fear finances, like the financial insecurities of the world. And so we're always thinking about finances. And what that does is it takes the fear of financial failure or financial insecurities, and it puts it as the captain of the ship. 
And the captain of fear of finances begins to drive how you make decisions, how you think about things. And it controls a bit about who we are. Others of us fear health. We fear this idea that we're failing in health. And well, what happens if we get sick? And so the captain of the ship is, is health. And they get to determine, control a bit of the decisions that you make, the directions that you go. This is why when the Bible says fear God, it's simply saying this, put God in the driver's seat. Fear nothing above God because God is the ultimate captain. In God, he has perfect love, which will actually cast out fears. He's like the safest place to deposit your fears because he's for you. He's for life. And so fear God. Put God as the captain of the ship and let him be the director of decisions and directions. And so with the midwives, that, that phrase, but they feared God. And they said, no, we're going to follow what God says. And we know that God says that every single woman and man is made in the image of God. They're the imago Dei. And because they're made in the image of God, God calls us to uphold that sanctity of life from the womb to the grave, we will fear God. And the midwives will say, we don't, feel, we don't fear Pharaoh. We will not follow Pharaoh and what he has called us to do. We will follow God and do what God has called us to do. And there's this beautiful line. God is active even when he seems to be apparently absent. There's this beautiful line in verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if they had longed for families, they couldn't have families or whatnot. I just know that here's the kindness of God who hears and sees and remembers and knew. And because they put God as first and foremost in their life, said, we will follow you. The Lord rewarded them with these families. It's so beautiful. And so before Moses is ever on the scene to redeem and rescue his people, God is on the move. And God is moving through these courageous God-fearing women. That they are rescuing Hebrew children from the grave. But then Pharaoh moves from it being a private affair with the midwives to calling his whole nation to say, when you see a Hebrew child, throw it in the Nile. Drown it. Exterminate it. It moves from being private to public. And which is the setting of our next scene of a courageous woman of faith. And this is Moses' mom. Now, a man from the house of Levi, this is chapter 2 now, verse 1, went and took his wife, a Levite woman. That's Moses' mom and dad. The woman conceived and bore a son under this predicament of murdering these children. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister, that's Miriam, stood at a distance to know what would be done to her brother, Moses. And so the next episode goes to, is God, does he see us? Is he on the move? Does he care? And there's this woman, Jacobin, who has a son who's to be Moses. And she hides him for three months lest the Egyptians will find him and destroy him. But after three months, he's probably a strong boy. Strong boys get loud. He's crying. Strong girls get loud. And at the age of three months, she can't hide him anymore. And so she, in her courageous faith, refuses to follow Pharaoh and throw him into the Nile. But she's going to place him in a basket 
amongst the reeds. And the motivation of this is that she too fears God. The writer of Hebrews, speaking of the faith of many of the patriarchs in the Old Testament, enlightens us with this. This is Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful, strong, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They were like the midwives. We will follow God. And she does that. Now what she does is she takes papyrus, this reeds, and she makes a basket out of it, putting tar and some uh, resin on it to make it float. Now the word that the writer of Exodus uses here for basket is a unique word. Hebrew scholar Robert Alter points this out, that it's an unusual word. In fact, it's only used one other time in the entire Hebrew story. It's the Hebrew word teva. It's used one other time, and it's used here to help connect the dots that this isn't the story about Moses, this is the story about God, what God's doing, how he's active in all of this. This word has only been used one other time, and it was used in the story of Genesis when God called Adam to build a teva, an ark. And as God took Noah and placed his family in the ark and brought salvation for humanity, here's Moses' mom placing her son in the ark unto the Lord, which will bring rescue and salvation for God's people from Egypt. It's to condense, to collapse the story of what God's doing and connect these dots of what God has been doing, what God will be doing. And there, Miriam, his sister, is left to babysit. Now, I don't know if you ever babysat. That gig sounds tough, okay? Like, what will happen to my brother? That seems like the ultimate adventure in babysitting, as it's been said. So on the scene is these courageous women of faith, these midwives, and a courageous mother of faith, Moses' mom, and a courageous woman of faith, Moses' sister, and on steps to the scene, another woman. This is verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds, and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. What a story. But now, here is a mom who has surrendered her son in the ark unto the Lord's salvation. And the Lord brings down this woman who's the daughter of the king who made the order to kill all the Jewish boys. And here in the ark is a Jewish boy. And the text tells us she took pity on him and she knew that this is one of the Hebrew children. She's not ignorant as though, oh, this must be an Egyptian son. I must save one of my own. No, this woman is courageous. She knows what her father has decreed. She knows what her government has upheld. And within the government, she says, I have compassion and pity. She took pity on him. 
her heart was moved within her to rescue this child that her culture said, destroy. And so she, it doesn't say she's a woman of faith, it doesn't say she fears God, but you see God's heart in her, that God's still active and he's moving even through people who might not be oriented towards him. He uses them to move his plan forward. God is always active, even if he appears to be absent. And one of the amazing events where Miriam, in her courage, steps up and says, oh, oh, princess, would, would you like me to go find? Would you like me to find someone to nurse your new son for you amongst the Hebrew women? Oh, yes, go, Miriam. And Miriam runs, and who does Miriam get? Her mom. Just, just think about that. As a mother who has just surrendered her child and said, God, do you even see me here? Do you care? Are you present? In short order, here is Miriam and her standing before Pharaoh's daughter saying, will you, will you nurse this child for me? That's, that's my child. And so she gets to nurse her own son in the security under the umbrella of this is Pharaoh's daughter's son. So she gets to be out in public and there's no fear that someone's going to take her son from her. No, this is Pharaoh's daughter's son. This is the princess's son. There's no claim on him. He belongs to her. And not only does she get to nurse and care for her own son, she gets paid for it. How great is God? I mean, now this slave woman is paid wages to be mom. All the moms in the room are like, hey, amen, I'd like some wages. I'd like some wages. Back pay is fine. If you want to pay back your mother, that's fine too. Checks usually start in the six figures. Um, and so here are these marks of, God, are you on the move? Are you doing anything? I don't see you. Do you hear us? And the God who seems to be absent isn't. He's moving all along. And before Moses ever comes on the scene to rescue his people, these mighty women of faith have rescued him because they have followed God. How great is that? And then the episode turns, and this is verse 11. It says, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So he knows he's a Hebrew people. He looked, sorry, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, Two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, what you're tempted when you read the story of, okay, Moses is rescued from the ark. He's in Pharaoh's household. Come on, baby. Like, we're out of here. All the Egyptians don't stand a chance. Israel, we're gone. Let's blow this popsicle stand. That's not the case. Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household. Now, how long does he grow up in Pharaoh's household? Well, it's interesting. Stephen tells us this in Acts chapter 7. He's recounting the life of, of Moses, and he breaks down Moses' whole life. In Deuteronomy, he tells us that Moses died when he was 120. And Stephen breaks down Moses' life into three seasons. 
and they're all 40 years apiece. It says, he grew up in the household of Pharaoh for 40 years. That's 40 years. God, do you hear me? You see me? You doing anything? There's people in this room that aren't even 40 yet. Sweet. <laughs> and then Stephen tells us, as he flees to Midian, and he gets a family, child, wife, builds a family there, that he's in Midian for 40 years. That's not 40 years. There are people in this room that aren't even 80 yet. They're super young. And you're tempted to read the story and think, okay, Moses on the scene, let's do the Exodus. That's not the case. And then when you see Moses who's fleeing Egypt, you're like, where are you going? Where are you going? Like, you're supposed to be here, and we're supposed to be doing God's thing. Like, where are you running to? God, you've just left us. The only hope was there was a Hebrew son in the household of Pharaoh, and he just fled. In 40 years, do you hear us? Do you see us? Do you care? And what we see in this incident with, with Moses and these Hebrews is that the heart of God who hears and sees and knows is also the heart of Moses. This is God's man. He has the same heart. And so when he sees his fellow Hebrew being harassed by an Egyptian, he steps in. He steps in. When he sees the Hebrews arguing and there's injustice here, he steps in. He hears and he sees and he knows and he, he's an advocate of protecting those who are taken advantage of and vulnerable. God's heart is displayed in Moses' heart for his people. It's a beautiful picture. Though Moses has to learn that vengeance is not his to take, but to entrust into the Lord. And there's this final episode that kind of colors in a little bit of who Moses is. As he gets to Midian, he encounters quite the scene. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flocks. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And so here's Moses with the heart of caring for those who are taken advantage of. And he steps into scene one, day one, these shepherds who are harassing these women. And he steps up for them and draws their water first. And feeds and waters their flocks. It's a foreshadowing of what Moses is going to do. When the ladies come back and speak to their father, they say, he, he rescued us. That's what Moses will do for his people. He will rescue them, and he will water, he will care for as a shepherd for the people of Israel. It's a beautiful picture of who this man Moses is. But before Moses has ever come back to Egypt, this is before he's ever stood before God on Sinai. This is before he has ever stood before the burning bush. This is before he stands before, before Pharaoh. The question is, does God see? Does he care? Does he, does he know what you're going through? And the answer is, God is active even when it appears that he's absent. He's moving amongst these women of faith to bring about Moses that would be his instrument, his chosen instrument of deliverance 
And so we get back to where we began at the end of chapter 2. And during those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Do you see me, God? Do you hear us? Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And what kind of God received their prayers? It's the one who hears. It's the one who sees. It's the one who's faithful. It's the one who just knows. He knows everything about you. He has not forgotten you. He has heard your cries. He has seen your pain. And he knows. What I love about the rescue of Moses is that God calls his people out of a place of bondage to a new place of promise. That he doesn't just go to the place of bondage and says, well, let's just change the, you know, the furniture. Let's like dust off the drapes. Let's change the leadership a little bit. Let's get you a little more comfortable here in Egypt. He says, no, I'm calling you out of a place where you're stuck. And I'm bringing you to a place of promise that you might flourish and have life. That's why, why I told you the story about my brother Stephen last week. We left him off, and he was climbing up Long's Peak, remember? And a fluke winter storm came in, and as they were on the ropes, they had to spend the evening in a winter storm with no winter clothing throughout the night with just huddling in their bivy. And Stephen's wife, Monica, and he are both afraid, like, is this the end of it? Is this the last night? What will God do? And I love this story because it gives this truth. His mercies are new every morning. And in the morning... A beautiful sun rose. In fact, it warmed the rock so much so that Stephen didn't just retreat back down to where he came from. He and his friend were able to finish their climb and summit, to go to the place where they were promised, where they were thinking of going. And that's what God does. When he brings you out of bondage, he takes you to a place of promise, a new place that you might flourish and live. In the days of Moses is a great picture, but remember Exodus is all about Jesus. The whole thing about Exodus is the frame and the foundation for Jesus to come and fulfill. Moses himself promised a better rescuer. that They were to look for a better Moses. And that is none other than Jesus Christ, God's only son, who heard our cries and saw our pain and stuck in our sin. And he knew. He drew near. He took on our iniquities. He was familiar with our sorrows. With every way that you've been tempted, he was tempted, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Why? That through his perfect life, he would set free sinners from their bondage of death. That anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ and say, I follow Christ, would be led out of the bondage of sin and death into eternal life and freedom, to a totally new place, to the kingdom of God, an eternal kingdom that begins now and goes forever to be set free from sin and death. And that is why we gather to remember our Savior, Jesus Christ, the better Moses, who led the fuller exodus, not just from bondage from a people, but bondage from death, something that we could not save ourselves from. But all those who have entrusted their life to Jesus and say, Lord, you are my Savior, who have turned from their sins and repented of their sins and followed Christ, are on their way to freedom, are set free and being conformed into his image. That's what we remember today at the Lord's table and communion.